The Old Testament reading has been taken from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 913. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountain tops, like a crackling fire-consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the fences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 for our New Testament reading. It is on page 1234 and 1235. I wish I could say that our passage here on this third Sunday of Lent was a little bit more encouraging from that Old Testament passage we read, um, but it's equally sort of serious. This is Christ's letter to the church. I believe this is our fourth church we've had. And this is his letter to the church in Thyatira, or Thyatira, or Thyatira. I'm not really sure. I didn't live then, you know, 2,000 years ago. But so Christ writes, starting in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. 
I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to who... To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we have a lot to get to this morning, so we're just going to get into it. Jesus starts out speaking to this church in verse 18 and says, You know, hey, I know your deeds. I've seen you, I've seen what you're doing, I've seen how you act. And I know that there is good there. Right? I see the love and the service, the, the, the perseverance. He knows their deeds. It says that his eyes are like a blazing fire. He sees all things. That his feet are like burnished brass or bronze. They're mighty. They're steadfast. And in verse uh, 19, he says again, we see this every single letter. I see what you guys are doing. You guys are doing great. It's so encouraging. Our God is so good. The love and the service we engage in, God sees He even says to this church that you're even doing more than you did at first. There's been growth. I see the growth in you. If you've ever had someone who's older than you say that to you, it's it's always a great thing to hear, right? I see the growth. I see the way you've learned. I see the way you've gotten stronger. This is the goal. This is the goal of all of us in life, is to try to figure out how do we grow? To use the biblical example, how do we produce good fruit, right? What are we supposed to do here? However, as with the other churches, there is also some issues here. And in verse 20, he says very clearly, there is a problem. You have someone among you. Not only do you just have someone there, but you're tolerating this person. There is someone among you who calls herself a prophet, who is teaching and leading people astray, and you are tolerating her. And this is a problem. Now, we don't know what her real name was. Odds are it was not Jezebel. Um, Jezebel is an Old Testament uh, queen that many of you may be familiar with. This was sort of a moniker in the world of belief for someone who would lead people astray. Maybe you're familiar with the story, but she was a queen. She was married to Ahab many, many years ago. And she worshipped the Baals and false gods. And she actually encouraged the Israelites to do the same. If you remember the story where she tried to kill Elijah, well, she tried to kill Elijah many times, but if you remember the story where she tried to, to kill the Elijah, this is the story with all the false prophets and, and trying to get their gods to light the altar. And so, Christ in this letter names her that because she's similar. What's amazing about this name is there's so many things loaded into this name Jezebel for the Christian community and the Jewish community. You know, I was meeting with um, some people this week talking about the prophet Joel, actually, and um, many of you may not be as familiar, but in Deuteronomy 17, Jesus actually, or not Jesus, but God lays out rules for kings. And one of the things he says is that you should have no foreigner become a king over you to lead you astray. 
Jezebel ended up being that queen. And then now we also see this here, even later in Revelation, that their believers are still allowing people from outside to lead and rule them. And here this woman in this church is leading people astray. It says very clearly that she was leading people astray. You know, the city they were in, it's not, it wasn't as big of a city as Ephesus. It doesn't have great ruins like some of these other ancient cities. But there is some things we know about it. Um, some of you may remember hearing the name Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth from this city. And in fact, history tells us that many uh, tradesmen and tradeswomen lived in this city. There were many of these trade guilds for all these different professions. And these guilds were very, very powerful. They were very popular, sort of like unions. And what would happen is many of these trades and guilds would have regular sort of parties. They would have regular get-togethers. And some of them were even tied into temples of Roman gods or goddesses. And so then, if you were an artist, potentially your guild would go to this temple to have this sort of party, and you, as an artist, would want to be part of the merchants in your town and know what was happening. You would go to this party, and then at this party, there would be great sin committed. There would be food sacrificed to this this false god or this Roman god or goddess, and you would be invited then to eat and partake of the sexual immorality of the time at one of these parties or temples or get-togethers. And so many scholars think that this is sort of what was happening and that this woman was not only saying that these things were okay, but she was actually encouraging people as a prophet to say that, oh no, the Lord has even told me that it's okay to do these things. The Lord has told me, you know, hey, you, you got to make a living, right? <laughs> you you got to go and be a part of society and engage in these things. Sure, go. And in doing so, people in the church were falling into great sin. They were following her because, of course, who are we going to follow? The leader who tells us we can't do something or the leader who tells us, sure, go have fun. And she was attracting followers. I like this lady. She tells me I can go and do all these fun things and there's no consequences. I'm going to follow her. If you look at that in verse 16, I'm sorry, not 16. It says, yeah, in verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman who calls herself a prophet. And then it says, by her teaching, she misleads my servant. See, this is where God sort of starts to get, I think, a little upset. This is where God gets a little angry. Christ is saying, these are, these are my servants. These are my daughters and my sons. And, and, and she's taking them away from this place. She is taking them away from your church community. And you are allowing her to take them away from this church community. You are allowing her. You are tolerating her sin. And in doing so, you are complicit in people leading my sheep astray. How might our Lord feel about this? Well, we see in verse 21 that first he has given her time to repent. Our God is so gracious says, listen, I've given this woman time to repent. I've given her all of this time, but she is unwilling. Christ has sought her out. Christ has been pursuing her just like he did with us and has waited for her to repent. And, and even though she is in opposition to him, she is taking people from Christ. Christ still says, I will forgive her. How great is our God. You know, people always love to criticize God for his judgment, especially in the Old Testament. 
But I just want to point out that when you read through the scriptures, there is always a chance first for forgiveness. If you continue reading in that passage in Joel we read, even after that whole description of the destruction that is going to come, he says later on, but even still, if you turn and repent, I will forgive you. Just like that. But this woman has said no. She's seen what Jesus offers, she's seen what God gives her, and she has said no thanks. And so then, verse 22, Christ says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And there will be suffering for their actions and for their choices until they repent. He then goes on to say something that sounds really harsh in our ears. He says, then I will also strike her children dead. And everyone will know that I am Christ, that I am the Lord, and that I see all hearts and deeds. Now, just as a clarifying, it's not actually literally her children. This is her followers. That he's going to cast out their followers so that they know what's going on. But this still sounds very intense, doesn't it? Sounds very harsh to us and to our ears. You know, why is this intense? Well, we immediately, we think, well, that's not fair. I mean, it can't all be bad. <laughs> or maybe we think of ourselves and we think, well, I don't really want my stuff to ever be out there. You know, I'm really glad church isn't like this. And we certainly don't like to think of our God sending suffering to us, of our God sending pain to us. But we learn early on in life there are consequences to our actions, don't we? You know, A.W. Tozer, um, actually today I think we're having a bookstall and some of his books are for sale. He's wonderful, but was very intense. And one of the things he said was that, you know, we have come, well, he says, it is doubtful that God could use any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And then the second part of the quote, which I love, is he says, we have come to believe that salvation means salvation from unpleasant things. Meaning that we think, well, okay, if I am saved by Jesus, then I won't have to worry about this stuff anymore. Everything's going to be happy and good. I want to remind you and us together as a church, as well as myself, that there are consequences for our actions. And in the same goodness we see in God and his offering for forgiveness and his offering to welcome us back in, there is also repercussions for the things we choose to do. And I just want to remind you that even though we have this passage where it's difficult and it's hard, look at the thing before it and the thing after it. The thing before it, he says, hey, listen, I will forgive her if she repents. And then the thing after it is also encouraging in verse 24. He says, now to the rest of you who do not hold to her teaching, I will not impose any other burden on you. Have faith until I return. See, this is how good our God is. Our God, like a parent, says, listen, you've done this thing wrong. There needs to be a punishment for your actions. However, as soon as you come back, I am here. As soon as you realize what you have done, I am here. And he goes on then to promise that those who wait for his return in faith will one day rule. You know, we read through the Gospels and we see so much about Jesus' love and mercy. But then when we look at this book in Revelation, we see that he's not just about being our best friend. He's not just about, you know, being our buddy. You know, these are very, very harsh words, but when I read this and I read something like the prophets and Joel, you know, I, I remember that Jesus was not just coming to die for us, but to continue the work of the prophets. He was a messenger sent from God to bring truth to us that we would know God's heart. And God's heart is not that we would do whatever we want, but that we would turn from our sin. 
Our God is certainly a good God, but we know he also can be a jealous God, and we know that he is just, and when we do something we should not be doing, when we commit an evil with or on another person, there is punishment. And just like God sent messengers in the Old Testament to lead Israel to repentance, the purpose was for restoration. How much he loves this church, he wants the repentance to come, not just so he can punish them, but so they can be restored. We sometimes think that God just wants to punish us because we've done something wrong, but no, God wants us to grow, to bear fruit in our lives. This is why he started the letter like this. I see the work you're doing. I see your growth. I want you to keep growing. And right now, there is something that is keeping you from this. He loves them that much. Now we look at ourselves. What is this letter saying to us? The International Protestant Church in Zurich. This can be an argument we can talk about theology. We've got to have good theology to get rid of false teachers, right? It talks about that in Timothy and, and all over the New Testament. This can be an argument for accountability. You know, we need to be in relationship with one another, you know? Shameless plug for the discipleship event Saturday. We need to have relationships with one another to keep each other accountable. So that these things don't get too out of control. You should all come Saturday. This could also be about proper worship and behavior in church. How do we carry ourselves? How do we properly worship from the heart, like Jesus says in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well? It, It seems... The one thing I want to talk about this morning is that when I look at this passage, I see that God is pretty upset. And, and I see that God is upset because the church has allowed something to exist that should never existed in the first place. This sexual immorality that, led, that was led to by these actions or their inability to act, we know that when we look through scriptures that this idea of sexual immorality and idolatry God takes very seriously. Look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God takes these things very seriously. And so in this story, we realize that God, while he loves us and while he forgives us, while he cares for us, he wants us to turn from the things we are doing that we have tolerated for far too long. And in doing this, Christ shows us through this letter to the church that we will find restoration. We will find rebirth. We will find a renewed energy, a renewed foundation to stand on. And yet our desire for this restoration and rebirth sometimes is seen by the world as narrow, unenlightened. You know, people think that that just because Christians don't put up with certain trends or certain ways other people live that we're bigoted. In fact, I even was reading an article on the plane this past week. I was on a plane and, you know, one of these ones where there's no just inner, inner Europe flight and there's no TV and you're just stuck with that. You forgot your book and you're stuck with that awful airline magazine. And so I'm reading one of these stories and it's actually sort of fascinating. It's about an American um, actor who, who just got so fed up with the culture in the US, he has an EU passport and so he moved to Paris. And this is what he said and I found this really fascinating. He said it's mostly, and he He is gay, and and, and this was part of his issue. And he said, it's mostly religious people that hate gay people. And they figured out a new way to enact their hate by saying that someone, somehow my very existence discriminates against them and I impede them from their religious practice. And then he goes on about other political issues. 
And here's the thing. This isn't just about one issue. This is about all immorality and all idolatry. And people perceive our desire for holiness as bigotry when really we don't hate anyone. If you do hate someone, that is something you need to repent of. But we as Christians do not hate anyone. And also we as Christians have to stand for the choices we have made and be willing be willing to take the responsibility for the choices we make. Church, we must be responsible for our choices and not blame others. I get so sick and tired of people thinking I'm one way or another way just because I'm a pastor. I, I, I had one person, uh, I didn't ask him if I could share this, so I just won't say his name. When he met me, I said I was a pastor, and he said, you don't look like a pastor. I said, well, thank you. Which, by the way, I take that as a compliment. I was just hanging out with a bunch of pastors, and I'm, I'm glad I don't. <laughs> but, but then he said, are you, a pastor? are you a pastor who loves people or who hates people? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, are you one of those pastors that just tells people what they can and can't do all the time and hates their freedom, or are you one of those ones that's really open and inviting and loving? And, <laughs> and at first, it reminded me why I often hesitate to tell strangers what I do for a living right away. But then it also just sort of made me so sad. Why do people think of us this way? I don't know. Everyone has their reasons. Everyone has their issues. But as you as a church, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how you carry yourself. I want you to think about how you live your life and the things you hold to be true. You know, Jesus, when he talks to Simon Peter and gives him the name Peter and tells him he's going to build his rock on his church asks him, who do you say that I am? Who do we as a church say that Jesus is? You know, because this is not a blanket statement about sexuality. This is not a blanket statement about sexual sin. This is not just about one issue or another. This is about sin and people being led astray by deceitful and hurtful people. This is about all immorality, personal or communal. This is about how we live our lives as a church and individuals. And let me just remind us once again, Jesus was very clear, how can a good tree bear bad fruit? We will be held accountable for our actions and there is no way around it. We look at this and it very clearly says that I will judge all of, all of you. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There are consequences to our actions. And God takes sexual sin very seriously, of all kinds. Do you not know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. For the believer... Your body is a big deal. Do not believe the lies of this world that say we're just animals, just like every other animal, fulfilling this evolutionary urge to, to do whatever. No, that is so not true. We were designed and called for much more. And when it comes to immorality, and especially with sexual immorality, we must know what the Bible says, and we must be honest about it. We must be honest with our weakness. We must be honest with our sin. Andy mentioned this last week. He said, you know, are we letting sin sort of gain a foothold and beginning to rule our lives? This is what this is talking about. This church had allowed this idolatrous thing to just sort of grow and everyone sort of encouraged each other in it and said, yeah, that's great. Keep going to those parties. No big deal. You know, I often think about this. 
I often think about this moral ambiguity that exists in the world today. There's no longer right and wrong. Everyone just sort of says, well, you know, you do you. You know, right, your truth. I've talked about this before. Sin, all of these things, this is what's so dangerous about this. Sin, immorality, idolatry, they all do the same thing. They create, now hear this, sin when we commit sin, which by the way is really fun. There's a reason it's so tempting, it's fun. But when we commit sin and we dabble in sin, what it does is it creates an alternate reality in our world. We create an alternate reality that we want because we think we can control it. And sin lies to us and tells you that you can control this thing. You can just go this far. You can just go this close and still be okay. And it creates an alternate reality where you think this is okay, this is acceptable, I'm still not that bad or I'm still not doing this thing. And we create a false reality and we believe this lie that we can control this reality. And then what happens is we begin to go back more and more. And we become more selfish. And then that one thing that we think is under control and is just an isolated incident begins to affect other things. And then in other areas, we start dabbling and we start going a little further and we start cheating a little more and we start cutting corners a little bit more. And then before we know it, because sin is so fun, we believe this is actually who we are. And the world tells you that if you go this far and you explore and you examine and you do all of these things, that's who you really are. That this is okay because this is who you really are because look how fun it is. And this is really who you were made to be. There is no truth. There is no right or wrong. You can do whatever you want because that's who you're made to be. It's what brings you happiness. And we believe that's reality. Sin lies to us so much in our ear that we begin to believe that that is the reality. And then when we read something like this in the scriptures, we think, oh, well, God's just too harsh. This God's not for me. I'm going to go back to the reality I've created for myself. And when we as a church tolerate that sort of thinking, it leads to death and destruction. Sin is so powerful and so deceitful. It lies to us and convinces us that the life of sin is really who we are, not the children of God. But we are, it is clear, it says so all over scripture. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. This world wants you to think that you can do whatever you want and live however you want. In the first century, we see it all over the place. They were living how they wanted and living in the world and living in in the church and just saying, it's no big deal, I can do both. But this woman was leading the children of God away from his house. How do you think that made God feel? Imagine if someone came and lured your children away from your house. Imagine if someone came and lured your family away from your house and they looked at you and said, no, thank you. This other option is much better. And you knew it was a lie and you knew it would hurt them. What would you do to stop it? Let us not think that the judgment of the Lord is simply God being vindictive. Let us think that God is doing this to actually save us. When there is judgment, when there is pain, when there is suffering because of our actions, what if God is actually doing it and allowing it so that we would repent, so that we would be reborn, so that we would realize our fault and we would never leave that house again? 
What exists in your life that you have tolerated for too long? Church, what exists in our house that we have tolerated for too long? Have we believed the lie that this stuff will not hurt us? If so, don't be afraid. If there's something in your life, don't be afraid. Look at what he says. He will be there. He has given us time of repent, repentance. And he will be there when we do repent. And for those of us who are faithful, let me not just assume that all of us have all of this secret, unconfessed sin. For those of us, the goal to be faithful, he, he addresses here and he says, listen, and for the rest of you, as we go forward and encourage our brothers and sisters, let us be faithful until Christ returns. That Christ desires to give us nothing burdensome. Christ desires to give us nothing that would hold us down. But Christ desires to give us love that we would be reborn and that we would be renewed. Church, I just want to remind you, and, and I know sometimes, I feel like recently I've happened to have these passages that always talk about repentance and sin. And if you feel like, hey, oh gosh, just another sermon on repentance and sin where I feel horrible on a Sunday afternoon, especially when it's so beautiful outside, you know, we need to have some coffee, we need to have some cake and sort of feel better about our day. This is a good thing. Anyone who's ever been trapped in sin, addiction, pain, hurt, knows the best thing is to get caught. And then you're free. When you're stuck in a system of lies, if anyone else had a problem with lying as a kid, yeah. You just lie and you 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 lie and then finally you get caught and it all unravels and it's just like, oh, that's how we enjoy our days, church. That's how we feel free. That's how we feel restored is to go to Christ and get it all out. Because if we don't, let me tell you, this stuff will kill us. As someone who comes from a family of abuse and alcoholism and drug abuse and hiding sins and secret things and brushing things under the rug, let me tell you, this stuff will kill us. But Christ is there. Christ is there and he says, I am here for you to repent. And as soon as you do, you will have a new life and you will start bearing fruit again. And we will go forward as a church and do these great things that God has called us to do. Sin tells us that our life in sin is the real us. God tells us that he loves us and has made us for more than what this world can offer us. The question you must answer is who is right? Will you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you now as your church admitting brokenness, admitting sin, admitting hurt. And Lord, we acknowledge that you call us to this repentance, Lord, so that we would be free. Lord, that we would have these, these weights off of our shoulders that we feel dragging us down. Lord, let us be brothers and sisters who leave everything in the open, who keep one another accountable to your truth and to your love. And God, let us be people who go into this world to show your love and that others would not see us as one kind of church or another kind of church, but as the church of Christ. Lord, this is our prayer. Teach us the way to go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.